All right. So if you have a Bible, please open to the book of Titus where we will spend virtually no time at all today. But it sounds like a great idea. So uh, Titus is the book we are looking at right now. We are going unbelievably slow so that we can understand the full implications of everything that is being said in that book. In fact, this whole series is called Essential. Because we're looking and saying, of all of the things in life that we think are essential, what are the actual things that 50 years from now will say, that's still essential? And what are the things 100 years from now, we're going to say, yep, that's still essential. And 1,000 years, what's essential? See, that's why this is so important. And so we've been looking at some of the essentials. And as we started the series, we have looked at the essential gospel, the good news of Jesus, the gospel of the grace of God. This is essential. Because what it means, in essence, is it is Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, that dead people are made alive. That's the gospel. That's the good news of Jesus. That's what matters. And so we've been trying to understand this truth and unearth it, and we've been doing so by the pen of Paul. And Paul's a guy that understands grace because he didn't always understand grace, right? He used to be a guy that said, it was my merit, my good works, my keeping of the law, my hating of Christians, my killing of the church that made me right in God's sight. And then God said, no, it's grace. It's grace. And so Paul became this man that was captured by grace. He, he tasted the essence of grace. And so everything about his life became this gospel of grace. Everything that he did was about the gospel of grace. In fact, in Acts 20, 24, he says, I do not account my life as of any value, nor precious to myself, if only that I may finish the course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of of the grace of God. He said that's it. In other words, for Paul, the formula is what we saw last week. Jesus plus nothing is everything. See, Paul understood. I mean, understand what Paul gave up. He was highfalutin, well-to-do, good job, well-respected, and said, no, it does not matter. I want Jesus. That matters. Jesus plus nothing and nothing means nothing. Not Jesus plus mostly nothing. Jesus plus nothing except for a few little additives that I chuck into the equation. He says, no, this is nothing. Jesus plus nothing is everything. This is one of those formulas I hope sticks with us the rest of our life where we go, yes, that is the essential. Because what we take ownership of and what we learned last week is that when Jesus was there on the cross and everything comes to a close and he says, it is finished. What he means is, it is finished in my work. Therefore, you can say in your life, it is finished as well. Because of what he did, right? He did the work. It is finished in you if you are in him. Because it's all about Jesus. It's all about his work. It's all about his finished product. See, that is the gospel truth. And see, that's why we always want to say gospel truth is something. 
It is something. That is what Paul is seeking to communicate in Titus 1 when he says, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. What he's getting at there is is saying, you really need to believe that Jesus plus nothing is everything. You really have to believe that Jesus did it all for you and therefore you do nothing. In other words, you believe that it's already complete. The gospel is a simple message that God has done this for you. That's it. And I'm making such an issue of this and I'm, I'm pounding it every week in this particular essential because I think we need it sort of pounded into us. Because I think no matter how much we like the idea, we also resist the idea. We do. Like the song, Jesus paid it all. Right? Jesus paid it all. We go, yes. All to him I owe. Yes. Sin has left a crimson stain, but he has made me white as snow. We go, yes. But inevitably, these things start to slip into our lives where it undermines the gospel. It undermines our understanding of our position in the gospel. It wants us to work or make others work. And we we start to lose sight of what the gospel is really all about. And so uh, looking at this and understanding the gospel of the grace of God, I I want us to look and go, wait, there is challengers to the gospel and the grace of God. Because the, the reality about sin is it's like this parasite and it's always pushing and it's always seeking to advance. And so all the more we have to be aware of the ways that sin tries to come in and overthrow the gospel, outrun the gospel, tort or t- tweet or tank can tanker the gospel and, and mess it all up. We want to make sure that we understand the enemies of the gospel, some of which we're very familiar with and we don't realize always they're, they're enemies formulas that come in and they mess with Jesus plus nothing equals everything. In fact, this morning we're going to look at three basic formulas that are the challengers to the gospel. And the first one is familiar. It's anything plus whatever equals everything. Anything plus whatever. And your whatever can be anything. It can be like a jersey, whatever, you know. It can be whatever, you know, I don't care what your whatever is, you know, it can be goth, whatever, you know, it doesn't matter. Um, because at the core, it, it's just challenging that anything is really concrete. Anything is really true. Now, now I'm going to give you some phrases really quick, phrases that we hear. We hear phrases like you need to be open minded. You hear phrases like we need to be non-judgmental. We need to choose our own reality. Whatever works for you. There are no absolute truths. Can I tell you where you're never going to hear those? In the science department. Isn't that really odd? Right? So our world is always saying, but there's like some places, these enclaves in culture, where nobody goes into biology and one-on-one and you go, okay, everybody, I want you to be open-minded. Pick whatever is right for you. You know? Run with that. You know? I mean, I know it sounds cool and all, but it won't, it won't fly, right? It just won't fly. But oddly enough, if you're at the University of Washington, you go into the science department, they're going to tell you you're not to be open-minded. You're not going to choose your own path. It's not all relative. What they'll say is what's relative is our understanding of what is true, right? We're, we're incomplete human beings, but, but there's an ultimate truth in the universe that governs everything. That's what the science department will tell you. We're just trying to figure out the ultimate truth. 
So they'll guard you against relativism there. But then if you go down the hallway and you cross into the philosophy department, suddenly the rules change, right? And if you go down the hallway of the philosophy department, you make a right and you sit in a class called theology in Western civilization, suddenly it's, we need you all to be as open-minded as humanly possible, right? It's also relative, buckle up, it's that relative, right? I mean, it's like, there, there, there's that. And, and that becomes sort of this, this enemy. Now, uh, with that, do, do I think that in some ways there's certain truths uh, that in science are a little easy to discover? Sure. Do I think in the supernatural realm there's just things that are mysteries? I, I believe that as much as I do in any other place, including science. But in there also, I, I, I do believe that there is an ultimate important truth that isn't just relative. I may not understand it. I don't fully understand gravity. I believe it. I don't understand it. And in the same way, I look at Scripture, and I don't understand everything about the Bible. Don't ask me to solve every mystery that the Bible pronounces onto the human existence and experience, because I can't answer all of that. But I do, at the core, go, I believe the Word of God to be the Word of God. I just believe that. I don't understand it all. And so it's not relative. And, and in that, I, I look a little bit more even, and I go, I think it tells us some things about us, whether we like it or not, that are just true. I love my Bible like I like my coffee, black, strong, and a little hard to swallow. I do. I really do, right? Because it's like, it shows it's transcendent, man. It's not trying to appeal to me. It's appealing to God. And when I look at Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 2, and I look at truth and I drink it like black coffee, I learn some things about how we deal with truth as human beings. Paul says we like to suppress the truth, exchange the truth, and disobey the truth. Go, 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 right? But, but, it, but it's true, this quest for anything plus whatever equals everything, it's, it's not enlightenment. It's really not. It sounds like enlightenment, but what it is, it's an attempt to suppress. It's an attempt to rewrite truth for our own comfort, our own conviction. Because what truth does is it dethrones us. It dethrones us. We're born on a throne. Me, mine. Right? First words, me, mine, no, my throne. And then truth steps in and says, oh, no, 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 you're sinful, there's truth, you're broken, you need Jesus. And we go, no, me, mine. Even when we're 45, still, we're talking like the accountant guy on the office. Me, mine, no, right? So that's the challenge. But, but when I look at this a little bit deeper, I'm realizing more and more that the quest for relativity really isn't about discovering truth. Because that's how it's played out. Nobody can know the truth, and so we're all trying to figure out the truth, and whatever your truth is is your truth and my truth. I'm realizing it's really not about a quest for truth. In fact, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul's talking about like the Antichrist, but I think it sets up a pattern for something that, that is applicable talks about that this man will come to do the work of Satan with counterfeit power and signs and miracles. He will use every kind of evil deception to fool those who are on their way to destruction because they refuse to love and accept the truth. Right? So there's this thing because it's in them. They refuse to love it. They refuse to accept it because that would save them. And he goes into verse 12. He says, then they will be condemned for enjoying evil rather than believing the truth. 
condemned for enjoying evil rather than believing the truth. I, I was looking at this here uh, last week, and I thought, what an interesting thing, because it doesn't pit uh, lie against truth. It pits truth against enjoying evil. It, it's almost like two different things. But what I realized as I was looking at that is that truth is a buzzkill. Isn't it? Literally even 420 buzzkill. So it's a buzzkill because truth says, I'm going to challenge the way you think, the way you do things. I'm, I'm going to challenge the fact that you love, you enjoy evil. What's wrong? It's all about you. Right. I, I was thinking about this, like even as you see young people kind of grow up in the church and then they go away to college and some of them completely relinquish their faith. And as they do so, they'll say, you know, I was sitting in this class, I went to the science department and those truths were absolute. Then I went to philosophy department and those things are all flexible. And I decided the biblical truth may not be total truth. And I'm in the quest for truth, and so I'm going to side with these other things that I think are more true. And that sounds all really academic and profound. I have never met the student that did that and became more pious. Right? They're like, I'm looking for truth, and I don't think that's truth. Now I'm joining a fraternity. Those chicks are hot. All right? Um, right? Like, like I, I've just never seen where they go, I'm going monkish on everybody because I've become a biology major. It doesn't, you know, it's, it's not that. It's... I'm going to go do my own thing now. I've dethroned truth. I'm back on my throne. And it's all relative now. I I think relativism is born more out of the fact that I don't want to be accountable than it is really an overwhelming quest for truth. Now, it might come out in different ways for different people, but, but this is just the thing that challenges the gospel. Right? And so we realize it's the thing that presses. It's the thing that pushes. Now, from this, we see that And we go, okay, well, now that needs a response. Relative thinking needs this reaction from those of us who believe the gospel of Jesus. So then the reaction comes. And unfortunately, the only thing that's more self-focused, godless, and arrogant than relativism is moralism. Is legalism. That is equally problematic. That's equally an issue. And that is ethics plus religion that equals everything. And, and we've seen it, right? We see the overcorrection. And the challenge about this one is it's more indigenous to us as a crowd. You know, we look at relativism, we go, no, that's bad, that's wrong, shame on you. Right? We do that. Right? But then in the church, we, we have our own response. Clamp down become rigid, become all fixated on morals, and from that we can lose the gospel. Especially because where this sometimes comes from is the most wise, seasoned, mature individuals in the church. Where we start getting lost into the morality of everything and we kind of forget the gospel. In fact, what we start to do is we start to invert law and grace. And, and, and we forget in time about grace, or at least we, we sideline it because we get worried about whether people are going to keep the law. And then we'll say, oh, but grace will say, oh, but you don't sin, the grace may abound, may never be. And they quote Paul, forgetting everything else that he said before and after. Like we take this one little chunk, you know, and we forget everything he said, which is basically, you're just all dumb, sinful, and stupid. Jesus is the only one that can change you. Now, should you take the attitude, I can do whatever I want? No, but at the same time, he says, I'm a dirtbag. That's what he says. And I need grace. 
right? But, but we get a little stuck on this whole thing. And we go, oh, no, 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 wait, 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 wait. And after a while, it sounds like at times that law is the big idea of the church, not grace. In fact, if anything, it's a little bit of putting the cart before the horse, right? Where, where really it should be, again, hey, law convicts you of sin and then grace says you're free. And we start forgetting that. We start thinking grace is really important, but boy, the law, the law, the law. Don't forget what to do. Don't forget morality. Don't forget good deeds and good works and be a good person and upright and all those things. And I'm not saying those things are bad. We're going to get there. But when law becomes the big idea, law becomes what we're most known for, then we are losing the gospel of grace. We're losing it if we do that. In fact, think about the word evangelical. The word evangelical, really, in church history means four things. It means we believe in Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone, and scripture alone. Some of you go, that's a newsflash. I didn't know that. I mean, honestly, you go, I didn't know that those are the four things that fall under the word evangelical. When we hear evangelical in our culture, what do most people think of? Conservative politics. Right? They think of the right wing. They think of that. Now, I don't think that's accurate. I think some of that's a caricature painted by those who oppose evangelicals. I'm not trying to say it's all accurate, but that's the understanding. That's the vision. And then what are then these evangelicals kind of publicly understood? What do they seem to most stand for? Law. Right? We, we, we get embroiled in things like homosexual agenda or creationism versus evolution. Or we get involved in even weird things like taxation. We get involved in things like kind of upholding the public moral standard. Now, again, am I opposed to some kind of public moral standard? Am I opposed to things like that? No, I, I don't think that. But again, the weird thing is, more often than not, people don't go, evangelicals, oh yeah, they're so known for grace. It's more, those evangelicals are so known for certain moral positions. Now, again, I think grace will lead to moral things. But if the big idea is the moral things and we aren't communicating that the gospel leads to those moral things, it's not helping anybody. It's not helping anybody at all, ever. Ever. Because our calling is not to ensure a moral environment. Our calling is not to make sure that we have an ethical society. We're not trying to convert people to being good people. We're wanting to convert people to being godly people and worshipful people. That's the big idea. And sometimes in really moral environments, those are the toughest places for the gospel to penetrate because those people are good. Go to the south. Right? I have friends of mine that are pastors in the South and they all say the same thing. They say, we come here and our biggest challenge is to unsave people to save them. And I'm like, well, what do you mean? And they go, yeah, because they all sort of grew up in the environment that we all like church. We all think it's good. We all think it's right. We watch NASCAR and listen to country. That makes us good people. Right? That's not an amen statement. That's not an <laughs> Right. But they, they get into this thing, you know, where it's like, you know, we're good people and they are the good people. But sometimes so good, then they don't see that they're bad and need the gospel. And, and that's the problem with pastors in the South. When you have a relatively moral environment, they don't see the fact that they need grace. 
And Paul saw this environment of works and rules and law as something that was directly opposed to the issue of the gospel of grace. In fact, in Galatians chapter 1, starting in verse 6, he says, I am shocked that you are turning away so soon from God who called you to himself through the loving mercy of Christ. You are following a different way that pretends to be the good news, the gospel. But it is not the gospel at all. He says you are being fooled by those who deliberately twist the truth concerning Christ. We go, great. What's the deliberate twisting of the truth concerning Christ? Chapter 3. He says, oh foolish Galatians, who has cast an evil spell on you. Now it's evil even. He says, for the meaning of Christ, of Jesus Christ's death was made clear to you as if you had seen a picture of his death on the cross. Let me ask you this one question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by obeying the law of Moses? Of course not. He says, you received the Spirit because you believed the message that you heard about Christ. He says, how foolish can you be after starting your Christian lives in the Spirit? Why are you now trying to become perfect by your own human effort? That's exactly what we do. That's exactly. I mean, I've been in the church 20 years. I see, I start to do it. I'm saved by grace. I'm saved by grace. I'm saved by grace. Now I'm starting to work a little bit, working harder, working harder, working harder. I'm working awesome. I am awesome. And then I start pointing at others and they suck and they suck and they, right? You know, because I'm doing so good. I'm doing so good. And then what happens? Boom, I blow it. And then what? Oh, then I think I have to dig out of the hole now. Right? I have to dig out of that. I need to earn my, my former standing. I need to get back onto that top shelf where God is loving me. Maybe we don't say it that way, but that's how we function. It's a little bit like, you know, working in a warehouse where it's like no accidents for 297 days. And bam! Day zero. <laughs> you know? Right? Isn't that true? That's exactly... That's exactly because we start thinking law. We start thinking works. We start thinking I have to contribute in this way. And Paul says that that's corrupting. This is why I keep going back to grace is radical because your position is Jesus plus nothing equals everything. I still think it's the craziest idea. That is the uniqueness of the Christian faith. That is the uniqueness of the gospel. That's it. That it's not simply about our adherence, it's about our adoration. That's what he's looking for. And so he's warning us. Don't give in to the trap of relativism, that's one thing. But don't give in to the trap of moralism, that's another thing. That, that corrupts and, and contaminates what the message of the gospel is. There's another area, I think this one's uniquely challenging for us. Uh, probably, especially as Americans. It's Jesus plus some things equals everything, and that is idolatry. Jesus plus some things equals everything. Now, this is a tough one because we'll say good, Jesus is good. Jesus is even great in our lives. But we'll start to go down that road of, but there's something in me that's still lacking. I just don't feel joy or contentment or peace. I, I read it in the Bible, but I, I don't have that. And I'm, I'm telling you personally, I've had many seasons in my life where I go, I read it, but I don't sense it. But instead of plowing ahead and saying, all right, Jesus, I want to know what it means to experience that peace and that joy and the contentment and that sense of satisfaction. I want to be like a Paul that says, I only want to know Christ. Instead of me begging to Jesus for that, I go, I'm looking for idols that I can bolt to Jesus. Jesus plus fill in your blank. 
Because I go, if I have Jesus plus this other thing, I'll be happier. I'll be more content. I'll, I'll have calm. And I'll close the loop. And so we start looking. We go through the great 2011, 2012 world catalog of fun idols. Right, you start flipping through. And remember when you were kids in the car? Called it, called it, called it, right? That's what we hear, right? Called it, you know, before your wife can get there. That's my idol. You pick your own idol, woman, next page. All right, so, you know. We just start flipping for our idols. We're looking for our idols. And here's an idol, and I've given the definition before. An idol is a tactical savior. It's really simple this way. An idol is a tactical savior. You might look at Jesus and say, he's the strategic savior. He saves my life. But then we start looking for these little tactical saviors for these little tactical hells that we need to be saved from. And so if I go, this is my tactical hell, so this is going to be my tactical savior, so I can get to my little tactical heaven in this area so I can be complete and joyful and all of those great things, right? So we start to, to figure that out. It's these little customized Christs, in essence, to fix things. So there's all sorts of little custom hells. For example, you look at your son, he's 14 years old. The boy is brilliant when it comes to video games. Anything with the GPA attached to it, not so great. Right? So you're looking at the son of yours whom you love and you see on the horizon jobless hell. Right? You know? I don't want my son to go to jobless hell. Therefore, I will get the idol of academia so he can be in job heaven. Right? I'm going to send him to saint, good school, parish, for you know, whatever. And, and, and that's going to rescue them. Now, am I saying that wanting our children to get good grades is bad? No. If I say it starts to consume you and it's fixated uh, in, in everybody's world and and it's almost more important than their spiritual development you don't care if they're reading their bible as long as they're doing their algebra right then it's like well what am i what am i banking on is the best thing for my child is that is that an idol or maybe you go i'm in overweight helen i want to be in fit heaven so you go, I'm just going to find that functional savior diet or better yet, I'm going to buy some crazy wonky contraption that you can only buy after one o'clock in the morning on television because it's good enough for Chuck Norris. So it's going to be good enough for me, right? And that's going to be my little function, functional savior to get me out of my little problematic hell and into my happy little heaven, whatever it is. You might have poor hell, you might have Tall hell, short hell, single hell, married hell, kid hell, no kid hell, whatever. And so we're trying to figure out those things that are going to be idols that are going to redeem and rescue that. The crazy thing, idols never free us. They put us on the chain for more. They keep us chasing for more, right? Obscuring the essence of grace. In fact, even in Isaiah 41 God is kind of challenging the idols. He says, present the case for your idols, says the Lord. Let them show what they can do, says the king of Israel. And then he's talking to the idols. He says, yes, tell us what will occur in the days ahead. Hey, can your thigh master tell you what's going to happen in the days ahead? I don't think so. All right. So what's going to happen in the days ahead? You know, let's find out. Then we will know that you are gods. In fact, do anything, do anything good or bad. It doesn't even matter, he says. Just do something that will amaze or frighten us. But no says you are less than nothing and can do nothing at all those who choose you pollute themselves and and i i think it's obvious when we become fixated on something that we think is going to solve our life more than jesus and and that that's the thing it it, it just grabs us it holds us it doesn't let us go this is the hope 
of my existence. This is going to make it all better. If you've ever said that to yourself, if I just had this, everything would be better. If I could just achieve this, everything would go right. If this person just went away, my life would be perfect. Idle, idle, idle. That will leave you chasing because there's always going to be something else that comes into your world and messes with you. See, idols shape us into themselves. Psalm 115, 8 says, Those who make idols are just like them, as are all who trust in them. See, that's Jesus plus something, where we're just kind of coming up with these other things, and therefore our, our, our faith is always this weird kind of pseudo-struggling faith, right? Because we're trying to find something else. We ask ourselves questions like, Why do I seem to stagger or stall or stagnate spiritually in my life? I found in my own experience, it's, it's because I am trying to do Jesus plus something else. When, when, when there's just seasons where it's just Jesus, I'm really zoned in, man. The bead, bam. I'm not struggling with why I'm stagnating or sluggish or stalled or whatever. I mean, I, I, it's just different. There's bad times maybe, but Jesus is good and I know it. But when there's idols, we ask those questions. When there's idols in our life, we ask ourselves questions like, why do I seem to stay quiet about Jesus but speak up about my idols? You know, I get really excited about those. Why do I seem to stress or fret about the uncontrollables? That happens when we're trusting idols more than Jesus. Why do I seem to show more passion and drive over things that I know are really just less important than the things I claim matter most? Why do I seem to live a very ordinary life when I claim a very extraordinary God? Those are all things that I've wrestled with in my... Those are questions I've asked myself uh, when I realize there's idols. It's how I kind of come to the realization that, oh, I'm, I'm trying to do Jesus plus something else, right? And, and that's why I'm having this discontent, this disconnect, this lack of focus, uh, those kinds of things. And so again, these are enemies to the gospel. They cause us to lose sight of the fact of who... I am. And who am I? What's the gospel truth? The gospel truth is Jesus plus nothing. Equals everything. It's always the same. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. It is his finished work. And as soon as I start getting that, again, I lock on to that. I'm, I'm not scrounging around for other things. It's me going, all right, Jesus, then teach me that. Let me live in that. And if I really come to get that, if we own the grace of the gospel, we own, without a shadow of a doubt, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, that will unleash your life. It will. I promise you. You will not look at people like Paul or Peter or David and go, I just don't get it. You'll go, I get it. I get it. Because I get grace. Because when, when we own what the, the gospel truth is, it produces a fruit. The gospel truth is certain things, and from that it begins to do certain things in our life. And that's really where Paul goes. He goes with what the gospel truth does. It is Jesus, and it does produce things in us. He says, it is the truth in Titus 1.1. 1, 1. Yes, welcome to Titus. He says, it is the truth which accords with godliness. 
See, some of the things we talked about as far as like moralism, we start trying to impose moralism and it fails. But what succeeds is when somebody understands they are in Christ, they are in grace, grace mobilizes them, moves them, swoons them, swells them for godliness. That's a whole different game. I'm not trying to do or earn anything. It's a whole different game when you get into the realm of godliness that flows out of grace. And that's where Paul's going. Now, to understand this, I want you to understand there is a difference between good and godly. There is a difference between good and godly. Think about it when we say, oh, those people, good people. That man, that's, that's good people. When we say that weird phrase, that's good people, even if it's singular, that's good people. All right? But when you say, uh, those are godly people, you mean something different. Right? It, it does have a different connotation. I think there's a difference between good and godly. Uh, good is safe. Godly is dangerous. Fundamentally, it's different. Good is respected by all. Godly will be dis- disrespected by some. Good, anyone can achieve. Godly, it's only for those who follow God. That's why his name is in the description. Good is temporal. Godly is eternal. Because at the core, good is about morals, but godly is about motives. And that's what we're talking about, these, these motives that are driven by grace. What this means is that godliness isn't dutiful obedience or religious loyalty or moral adherence. If those things are godliness, then the Pharisees win. Pharisees were completely godly people then. Because they adhered, they were loyal, they were obedient, and they were completely corrupt in the process. In fact, uh, kind of looking at the Old Testament, moving into the New, we see in the book of Isaiah, where just because you're good doesn't mean you're godly. In fact, you can be good and you can be wicked at the same time. Isaiah chapter 1, starting in verse 10, he says, Listen to the Lord, you leaders of Sodom. Listen to the law of God, you people of Gomorrah. That does not start out good. Right? I mean, like anything. You know, like they're saying that. It, it's bad. All right? Uh, I can't name cities because I get in trouble for that, but you get the idea. All right, so verse 11, what makes you think I want your sacrifices, right? So he's talking to Israel. What makes you think I want your sacrifices, says the Lord? I am sick of your burnt offerings of rams and the, the fat of fattened cattle. I get no pleasure from the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to worship me, who asked you to parade through my courts with all of your ceremony? Stop bringing me your meaningless gifts. The incense of your offerings disgust me. God's mad, right? Now, these people are doing all the right things. They're going to church. They're bringing their tithe. They're on and on and on. In fact, it goes on. He says, as for your celebrations of new moons and Sabbaths, your special days of fasting, they are sinful and false. He says, I want no more of your pious meetings. I don't want your piety, he says. I hate your new moon celebrations and your annual festivals. They are a burden to me. I cannot stand them. When you lift your hands in prayer, I will not look. It says, though you offer me many prayers, I will not listen, for your hands are covered with the blood of innocent victims. He says, you, you think you're good, you're religious, you go to church, you do the right things. He says, but, but, but you're doing it to be good, not godly. Your motives are not for me. It's for something else completely. In fact, Jesus says this in Matthew 15. He says, you hypocrites. He says, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, for he wrote, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts. Their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a farce, for they teach man-made ideas as commandments of God. 
See, the issue here is that they wanted to be good people without being godly people because they wanted to be people of the law, not people motivated by gospel. Not people motivated by grace, but people that were self-righteous. And so that's where I, I come back to what is true godliness. True godliness is something different than just obeying. It's more than just being good. Because too often, I think there's times where we live more like good than, than we do like godly. We miss some of the motivation. For example, we start to think, well, I'm going to have right conduct, but I do this from fear so as to appease God. Or I'm going to have right conduct, but I'm going to do it from loyalty because that is my duty. Or I'm going to have right conduct through my works so I achieve merit. Or I'm going to have right conduct, but I'm even resentful, but I know I have no choice but to be compliant. These are all the things that happen, but godliness through the gospel is right conduct from gratitude as worship. That's godliness. And that's godliness from the gospel. So it's not like I wake up every day and go, I don't want to make God mad at me. How do I make God not mad at me? It's God's not mad at me because of Christ. Because Jesus said it's finished and it's finished for me because it's finished for me. I do right things, but from gratitude. From gratitude. That is grace. I mean, think about this. Like Ellen. Ellen wants me to take her on dates, but that's not really true. You would love to think that. I know. Actually, what Ellen wants is for me to want to take her on dates. Right? That's all we're talking about. All right? So, it's that simple. Ellen wants me to want to. So when God says, I've saved you by grace, you're in Christ, that's it, it's finished, it's done, you're good to go, you're secure, everything else, he says, and in that I want you to want to live a life fully pleasing to me in gratitude as worship. As soon as you say, I have to obey, goes, whoa, 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 I get that, let's fix that. Let's fix that. That even in grace, he wants to help correct that and fix that, you know, so that we really want to, because that is the essence of grace. Grace that leads to godliness is powerful because grace in that godliness, grace that builds godliness does three things. First of all, it frees. It frees us from the stupid of sin. And I call it the stupid. I'm throwing the definite article on a lot of things nowadays. It's the stupid, all right? Um, and because and, and, you're free from sin, says in Romans 6. Man, gratitude. Gratitude. Grace unto godliness frees so that we are not given to that slavery. It focuses us from a worldview to a world vision. Here's worldview. I see the world and judge it. Here's world vision. I see the way Jesus sees the world, and I want to see it redeemed. Worldview can be a criticism. World vision is where it can go through the gospel. And he frees us to that, and that is godliness. And grace unto godliness fuels a life fully pleasing to God. Fully pleasing. It is finished means what you see there. Frees, focuses, and fuels. So we can say with conviction, Jesus plus nothing equals everything everything 
And from that, that leads to a gospel promise. Paul gets into that as he goes into Titus 1, verse 2. He talks about faith and truth and godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. So he says, all of this is there, that that faith, truth, godliness all goes to hope. And it isn't like, I hope one day we have eternal life. What it is, is your very hope in life is the fact that you have eternal life. It's your very hope. And we say, what is eternal life? Is eternal life like I go to heaven and I'm like in a diaper shooting arrows? And you know, what, what's, what's eternal life and everything else? Well, here's the cool thing. It always comes back to the gospel is about Jesus. John chapter 17 Verses 1 through 3. It says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that you may know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. When you read eternal life, what is eternal life? Eternal life, is it clouds, is it heaven, is it this other place? And what the Bible says is eternal life is knowing him. It's knowing him. That is the hope, that you can know him. And you can know him by grace. You can serve him by grace. You can grow in him by grace. You can be shaped by Him in grace, through grace, because the great key essential in life that it's Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And in that, it is the essential of His grace. Let's pray together. Jesus, I I, I look at some of these things and I go, man, these are some tough things to understand because we... uh, you know, we, we wrestle with this. We, we wrestle because we go, okay, so it's, it's, it's your grace, Jesus, but then your grace fuels me to be godly, which is to be obedient, but you want obedience that comes from the heart, obedience that is out of gratitude, obedience that isn't simply dutiful, but delights in you. Uh, boy, that, that's where our disconnects happen. And I have to ask you, Jesus, to step in and continue to work that out in all of us. I mean, I don't think there's anything easy about this at all. I think it's very hard to understand that we stand in your grace alone and that we are who we are obediently in your grace alone. But then that grace works in us and we have a responsibility to that grace. I don't know how that works. But I know that you are at work and you do so for your own glory. And so I pray that you would help us see and understand Uh, to wrestle with the implications of grace, to be known as people of grace, to to look at our world and say more than a world that is moral, we need a a world that is worshipful. And that that would shape everything. So we look to you to do that task in us. And I pray that we will simply own this essential that you've given to us, that we will be people of the gospel, people of grace, people know their standing is in you, and people who know that eternal life is this knowing you. That it is you, Jesus, plus nothing. And that is everything. We love you and we thank you in your awesome name. Amen.